Friends, as it is the fall season, I want to begin a series of messages. In the summer, we were looking at the encouraging scriptural messages that we sing about in some familiar hymns. But this fall, I want to put us in the classroom with Jesus as the teacher. Jesus, I love the story in the Gospel of Luke. It begins where Jesus is young. We see him born, the baby in the manger, so many wonderful stories that are recounted to the gospel writer Luke by Mary herself because we see what Mary uh, stored in her heart and Luke said he interviewed these individuals that were involved. So he has some incredible insight and personal stories into the life of Jesus that we don't see in some of the other gospel accounts. And one of them is when Jesus, we see him as a baby, we see him at a 30-year-old and the only glimpse we get between Jesus the baby coming back from Egypt at about two years old, and Jesus the man launching out into public ministry is this account in Luke chapter 2. We see, we remember the story that Jesus as a 12-year-old, and that's very important in this culture because 12 years old, you are now bar mitzvah, you are now a son of of the law. You're accounted in Jewish religion as being old enough to understand God's commandments and to begin to follow them. So Jesus and his family, as was their wont year by year, they went up for the great religious uh, feast of Passover to Jerusalem, and they traveled as a large extended family. Joseph and Mary had all the kids to watch out for and take care of, but they were kept safe because they were traveling with extended family, with a group of pilgrims. They came all the way from the Galilee, and they were going to head back together. On their way, we remember the story, they were taking probably at bedtime, they were tucking everybody in, or maybe at a mealtime, and they noticed that the oldest of the brood, Jesus, their firstborn, was missing. And they began to say, well, he's probably with auntie this or uncle that, and as time went by, they couldn't be found. And so they had to do a U-turn, head all the way back, uh, down the valley, up the Jericho Road to Jerusalem to search for the lost child. Now, I've told that story, how we lost a child in West Edmonton Mall. Lost him. Gone. I won't tell you who it was, but he may have given you your worship folder, your bulletin this morning when you came in. No names are being given. (laughs) And finally, that child was restored to us after the longest hour of our lives. And we found him. Uh, He had been turned in like lost and found. He had been turned into security. And we found him uh, safe and secure in the security office in West Edmonton Mall. What a terrible hour that was. I never want to go through it again. So as a parent, I empathize with Joseph and Mary and their fear as well as anger. That, that It's a special thing with parents. When you find your child safe, you are so thankful and relieved. You love them so much that you could kill them you know, for getting lost. It's, it's a strange thing that only parents understand. Well, in this story, Joseph and Mary find Jesus... He says, I'm not lost. What do you mean lost? I'm here in my father's house. It's an incredible story. The search went on for days. We pick it up in verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. 
Now, this is important to our series this fall because we see Jesus from a young age learning the power of pointed questions. They were amazed by his questions to such an extent that these most learned of all rabbis who taught in the temple courts, not a country synagogue, they're in the temple in Jerusalem, and they are baffled and amazed at the understanding of this 12-year-old boy just from the questions he asked. His questions were wiser than their answers that they in turn begin to question him and hear from him. Now we know this is at 12 years old because in that culture, a child was to be seen and not heard until 12 years old. We're we're not talking about in the home and so forth. We're talking about religiously in synagogue and in the temple, that you could not open your mouth even to ask a question until you were 12. You weren't responsible. You weren't mature enough. You couldn't ask a knowledgeable question. But at 12, you could ask a question. Not till you were 30 could you teach with authority. Isn't that interesting how they, even at that time, understood the process of maturity, not only physically but spiritually? I find it fascinating that Jesus' questions were so powerful, probing, pointed, showed such depth of knowledge that they were amazed. They were amazed. Questions Jesus asks. You know, it's one of the great threads of his ministry. In fact, in his teaching ministry, some people have actually said that the questions Jesus asked are the heart, are the core of his teaching ministry. We know he had many incredible methods. Jesus pioneered a spiritual story, not quite an extended metaphor, not really an allegory. We even had to give it a name, a parable. Not a fable like Aesop. It it was different in a way. It was qualitatively different. Jesus taught with parables. He taught with examples and object lessons from nature. He taught with an incredible authority that all the other teachers of his time lacked. Remember what they were astounded in the synagogue, that this unlearned man, this carpenter from Nazareth, a town in the backwater looked down upon for its Gentile influences. This unlearned carpenter taught with authority. The other rabbis, they claimed no authority. They had no authority. All they could do was quote other rabbis who quoted other rabbis who quoted other rabbis. And somewhere under all of those layers of onion peel was the Word of God, hopefully. Not Jesus. Jesus spoke the Word of God. He was the Word of God. It's an incredible thing. His teaching, authority, parables, stories... But at the heart of it were questions. Now, you can look up how many questions that Jesus asked in Scripture. Some people will say, and there's a whole book written on it, that Jesus asked 330 or 350 questions only in Scripture. But in reality, we're not sure. You can't be sure because there are no question marks in Hebrew or the unsealed Greek that the earliest manuscripts are written in. There's not even spaces between words. So sometimes you don't know if it's a question or a statement. You just can't tell. And uh, it's always a bit of interpretation from the context when we're reading them. If it's a sentence and somebody answers it, well, that was a question. 
but we can't hear it. We go up on the end of our questions. We go up. Is that true? But we couldn't hear that in the Scripture, so we're not sure. And some of them are actually repeated. I don't think we should count the same question in three different Gospels. And some of them, Jesus is quoting somebody else. He's telling a story, and that question is somebody else's. It's not his. But when you boil it down, there's around 125 to 150 unique, powerful questions that Jesus asks. And I think that's important because we think Jesus giving the answer and being the answer. How many questions did he actually answer? Directly, really directly, three. Extended with questions involved, he answered closer to ten. Imagine that. He asks at least ten times more questions than he answers. The ones he answers are important. But you know what he most often will do? Especially when his enemies ask him a question? He answers it with a question. Jesus and questions. Why would he do that? Well, I've been studying that for some time now, and I found a wonderful, it's a long, a long uh, scholarly article, but they summed it up well, and I want to read a bit of the, the, the summary to you. It says, Jesus' primary motivation for asking questions was not to learn information. That's why I asked them, what's for supper? You know, like, I want information. His primary motivation for asking questions was not to learn information for himself so much as to help others learn. Most often, as an adult, Rabbi Jesus' questions served other purposes. They were asked for the benefit of the one hearing the question and served various functions. For instance, to incite thinking, to challenge the assumptions of his learners, to produce faith, or even to silence his enemies. Jesus' questions had the ability to provoke, to disorient, to inspire, and even to condemn. Sometimes Jesus' questions reached into a person's heart to disclose what was already there, perhaps a fact about that person that they themselves were completely unaware of. Completely unaware of. Until he asked them and got them critically thinking He wanted people to think, who do people say that I am? There's so many questions that he asks. And this fall, we are going to, out of all of those, and not always the ones you think, the most obvious ones, because we hear them all the time, but we're going to look at seven questions that Jesus has asked, because I think he still asks them to us today. And all of this impact of his questions, I want it to be impacting our lives as well. And then before the Christmas series, we'll have three answers he gave. We'll look at those three direct answers because they're powerful too. Seven questions. Today's question's interesting. He asks, what reward is there in love? What is love's reward? Now, the setting of the question is, who do you love? Do you love those who love you? Or do you love people who don't like you? who aren't a fan of you. What reward is there in love? Jesus is talking about basic human relationships. And this is important. It's a theme of Jesus' teaching, especially as we look today at a passage that is in the famous Sermon on the Mount, 
There's a lot of scholarly discussion around the Sermon on the Mount. Who was Jesus teaching to? Well, we know they weren't Christians because he hadn't died. I mean, he rose in a grin. They weren't in the upper room. This was the crowds. This is the multitude. But they're the Jewish multitude. They're the people of faith. They are the, they are the assembly of God's people in that time and in that place. And he asked some questions. He, it's a fascinating and powerful passage. And the question, it's really a series of four quick questions that ask the same basic thing. And he asks, should we only love those who love us? Should we only love those who love us? Now, Jesus asks, if he asks you, should we only love those who love us? We say, oh, that's the easiest thing to do. I know the worldly wisdom would say, yes. There might be some people when they're feeling generous who say, oh, no, we'll love everybody. But really, the loving the enemies thing, that's not human nature. Human nature is reciprocity. You give what you get, and you get what you give. Years ago, I was caught in an example of reciprocity. I had applied, I think it was maybe the first time I went to Russia to teach at the Bible school to be an instructor. And because I was in Canada, and all the other Canadian instructors, it was smooth sailing. Russia loved Canadians, and we got our teaching visas very easy. And then, boom, red flag came up, because at that time, I only had one passport, and it was still an American passport, the country of my birth. And Russia threw the brakes on. And I remember getting the letter. They say, we in the Russian Federation believe in the principle of reciprocity. And because you darn Americans treat us so poorly and you have so many restrictions on our visas, we're going to treat you the same way. We don't care if you're a, a, a Canadian pastor, a Baptist. You've got an American passport. So we are going to make things hard on you because you make things hard on us. Fair, human reciprocity. And that's kind of what we do, whether we admit it or not. We tend to function that way. We tend to only love those who love us inside the family, inside the group. Sometimes even our churches can become holy huddles, and our love is only for those who love us. We're friends only with our own friends not with others. Jesus asked this question in Matthew chapter 5. As I say, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's in the context. It's that incredible chapter 5 where Jesus is speaking to Jewish people who know the commandments, and he's telling them, here's the command and the tradition around it, but I want you to go further. You think, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm obeying God. I've never killed anybody. I've never stabbed anybody. I've never taken a life. And Jesus says, go further. If you hate them in your heart, you've killed them in your heart. See, Jesus is taking it to a, from a human following the rules level to a heart level. And he's talking about a relationship with others and primarily a relationship with God. He's elevating the discussion. And he does it again and again and again. Murder, adultery, oaths, eye for eye, reciprocity, all of those things. And then at the end of chapter 5, he really makes it personal. He says in verse 46, if you love those, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Picks the worst person 
that they could imagine, a tax collector. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Well, now he's moved from the the worst Jews you can imagine, tax collectors, to the terrible Gentiles. Jesus says, if you love and greet and care only for those who love and greet and care for you, what good is that? What reward is it? What are you doing more than others? The master teacher is asking you a question. He wants you to answer it, think about it. And not only the what you do, but the why you do it. You see how he got the people thinking? Got them wondering, where is he going with this? What does the Bible teach? What do the rabbis say? What do I do? Yeah, I hate tax collectors. I hate the pagans. I only stick with my kind, birds of a feather. Well, Jesus implies in those four questions that for God's people, people of faith, you need to go further. Going further, Jesus says, is loving our enemies. Going further, people of faith, people who want to be like God, have to go further. Now, Jesus begins all these sections by saying, you've heard it said. And in this one, we'll see in a few moments, Jesus says, you've heard it said, you know, to love those who love you, to love God's people, but to hate your enemies. Love your friends, hate your enemies. He says, but I say to you. He always takes it further himself. Well, I asked myself, when he says that, that's what the people's understanding is. And I said, well, was their understanding based on God's word? Did the Old Testament commandments really teach you to hate your enemies? Jesus says, that's how you're practicing it. That's how you're understanding it. But as I look at God's word, I say, well, that's not what the original intent was all. For instance, in Leviticus, this is where Jesus loves to quote the great commandments. In Leviticus, he talks about neighbors. He says, I'll begin reading, he says, verse 16 of Leviticus 19, do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I'm the Lord. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share his guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. That's where that comes from. Love your neighbor as yourself. That was God's intent. That was the great commandment. But what about our enemies? It's easy to love those who love us. Now, even our neighbors sometimes, you know, the old saying, tall fences make good neighbors. You know, like, even our neighbors don't always get along, but we love them as we love ourselves. God's people were tracking with them then. But, you know, in Exodus... Remember, these were people surrounded by enemies as Israel is today. And it says in Exodus chapter 23, it says, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help him with it. There is a secret to loving your enemy. It's not saying your heart's going to feel warm and fuzzy and affectionate. But it's an act of the will to do good by somebody. By in your actions to be a blessing in their lives. 
Even for those throughout Matthew 5, Jesus says, those who hate you, those who lie about you, those who persecute you. And everybody has that list in their minds. And Jesus says, God wants us to love them. We see that all the way back in the Old Testament. Love your enemies. We see a lot of hate in the Old Testament. God's people hated their enemies. Remember when God called Jonah to go and preach deliverance and repentance and call upon the city of Nineveh, the terrible, awful, bloodthirsty Assyrians. And Jonah said no. He hated them too much. And he ran from that message of deliverance. And God wanted them saved. He loves everyone. And he wanted Jonah, his person, to love them as well. Well, if we're called then to love our enemies, ask a question. Be like the child you once were. Remember when you had so many questions? My question is, love enemies? Why? What good does it do? Why should I? Why? God's not afraid of your questions. He asks a lot of questions himself. Why? If you've raised a child, you remember those years. Those years of questions. You know, a number of years back, they did a study of a children's questions. And these were primarily mothers that were involved in that. How many questions a mom gets asked? This was taken in the United Kingdom. And in those, they found where the question asking peaks. Boys or girls, you know who asks more questions? Girls. Their brains are developing, very verbal. What age do they ask the most questions? Four years old. Those of you who have four-year-old girls, we will pray for you. It says from that study, it says, girls aged four are the most curious, asking an incredible 390 questions per day, averaging a question about every one minute and 56 seconds of their waking day. Mothers are called on by their children to answer 23 questions per hour. From breakfast to tea time, this is the United Kingdom, you know, that's afternoon tea time, about four. The average mom faces testing 12 and a half hours a day of questioning, working out at one question every two minutes, 36 seconds. The most questions are asked during mealtimes, averaging 11 questions. The next is when you take them shopping. They got about 10 questions. Nine are asked while you're trying to give them a bedtime story. Imagine that. We get so used to it happening that we don't even think about it. I remember driving my mom to distraction. You know, I would ask her this, I would ask her that, and then I would get into that place where she would give an answer, and I'd say, well, why? Well, this and this. Well, why? You know, it's like never-ending. You know, the study says it's so important because these children, they're gathering information to solve problems and understand the whole world around them. We need to answer. I remember, especially our oldest, he was a curious little one. Why does the sun shine? He was very, sound like a stoic. You know, why is the sun shine? Why is the sky blue? And so I tell him about refraction, and you know, and he'd take it all in. I remember once at a at a seminary event where we had the kids along, and a little girl asked, "What's your favorite color?" And he says, "Blue." <laughs> and I and she, she'd never been around young kids, and so I asked, I said, "Mike, what's the sun made out of?" Mostly hydrogen, you know. <laughs> so. And so she, this kid asks a lot of questions. 
He'd ask, why are clouds white? Where do babies come from? Go ask your mom. See, remember that? That's a great answer. So many questions. And so I don't think God's afraid when you and I ask, love our enemies? Why? Why? Those who persecute us, who oppose us at every turn, those who hate us because we're followers of Jesus, well, why? Well, if we look in Luke chapter 10, I think we get a good understanding of it. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. This is, of course, the occasion that I've referenced earlier where people were testing Jesus, trying to ask him questions to trip him up and get him in trouble. And they ask him about the greatest commandments. Beginning in verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How's Jesus going to answer that question with a question? What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. (laughs) You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he, the questioner, wanted to justify himself. He was looking bad in front of all of his friends. So he asked Jesus, And who then is my neighbor? And that's when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. A story at its heart, which is about loving your enemy. He said, well, no, that's about helping. Well, yeah. The Samaritan, the one who helped, was loving an innocent victim of a crime. But this innocent victim was a Jew. They had history between them. They had historical hostility. They had racial hostility. One pure-blood Jew, the other one mixed-race Samaritan. They had religious antipathy and hostility. You worship in Jerusalem. We worship on this mountain. They hated one another, but he helped this hated Jewish merchant where the others just cared about following the rules. The priest, they couldn't touch the man. He might be dead and they would be unclean religiously. They followed the rules where the other one, he just helped. He just loved. I love how that passage ends. Jesus asks the guy the question. He says, who do you think was a neighbor? And he had to answer, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Love enemies. Why? Because God commands it. It's in the commandments. It's his desire for his children today. God commands it, but he never commands us to do something that our father doesn't lead us in doing. God commands it, but he also models it. And Jesus in his death for us on the cross is the greatest model of that. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 reads, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 says, again, the same thing, but really says what it means to be a sinner. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, 
how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? While we were yet sinners, while we were God's enemies, Jesus loved us. No greater love is that than this, that you lay down your life for your friends. But Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. He showed the ultimate act of love for us. He models it. We follow him. And so certainly his people should be those who love others, those who understand the difference between helping somebody and being a blessing to them and going too far and enabling them. You know, the founder of Mustard Seed here in Alberta was done through Central Baptist up in Edmonton. Mr. Nixon said years ago, his sons are in politics even today, but he said years ago when he was on the street, as Randy mentioned earlier, addicted to drugs, he used to beg for handouts. But he knew from experience that not a nickel of those handouts ever went to food for his stomach or clothes for his back or a roof for his head. Every bit of it fed the addiction. It all went to drugs and booze. And so Mustard Seed says never give a handout. Don't give a handout. Give a hand up. Help those who are open to help, to being truly helped. Not enabled, but to be helped. That's what Jesus desires us to do. That's why Christians today have always been at the forefront of helping those who need help, who are open to being truly helped and not just enabled to continue a destructive life pattern. Love our enemies, be a blessing. That's the context of this question. And we finish with that. That when we love others, whether they love us or not, be a blessing to everyone. You are being like your heavenly father. Loving like our heavenly father. Don't pick favorites. In Matthew chapter 5, we'll go back. Before those questions were asked, this is how Jesus began that section. You have heard it said that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Then he gives an example. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Then he asks those questions. And he concludes the chapter with this. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's jarring sounding, isn't it? If you are a blessing to others, and not a respecter of station, or whether they're a fan of you, or whether they love Jesus, if you are a blessing to everyone, if you're kind-hearted and seeking to good, do good to all men, then you're like your heavenly Father. And when Jesus said, be perfect, what trips us up is the translation. That word is not be morally perfect. Be ultimately holy. Because the Bible recognizes that we're sinners forgiven and we're not going to be spiritually complete and perfect 
and sinless until heaven. We seek to be sanctified and grow more like Jesus day by day. We're not, going, we're not sinless today, but we seek day by day to sin less. The word perfect here literally means complete. That this is what's missing for us. This is the sign of maturity. That you have grown up in your faith when you can love and be a blessing to everyone. Love them all. Not just the family of God. Love them all. Your love should start with the family of God. They're your brothers and sisters. Your immediate family at home, the family of God, they're a priority. But we don't stop there. We seek to be a blessing to all. Like the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Years ago in Israel, I talked to a a Jewish man about rain and how they depend on it. In a desert country, rain is life. He says, we have a word for rain. Literally, we call rain the blessing. What a beautiful picture that we want to rain a blessing on all those around us. The people will be blessed because they know us and experience God through us. So I finish today with that encouragement. The Apostle Paul closes a sometimes tough letter to the Galatian church with this encouragement. He says, let us not grow weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Don't wear out doing good. Because there is a reward. What's the reward for loving those who don't love you? A harvest. You're planting a seed that will grow. You can break a hard heart. You can break up that hard ground of their heart simply through caring about them. They experience Jesus' love through us. Not only the harvest of souls, but the harvest of blessing. You're never more blessed than when you're a blessing to others. (laughs) You'll be tired, but it'll be a good tired. Because there's a cost to serving and to caring. But oh, a rich reward. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as Jesus hears, Lord, they were affected by the questions he asked. They weren't just taking in information. They weren't just listening. They were being transformed. They were having to turn their eyes, roll their eyes back and look at their own heart and see their relationship with you. And Father, as you ask us today about our love, do we limit it? If we do, Lord, we put limits on love that you don't. Help us, Father, to act in love. Give us the wisdom, Lord, to truly do good, to not be enablers, to not be, Father, just like a a vending machine that gives everything freely, but, Lord, to strategically be a blessing. Find those truly in need and seek to meet the need with others. Lord, grow our love for you. Grow our love for the family of God. Grow our love for a world who sets itself up as your enemy and through that as our enemy. Lord, they may hate you, 
And because of that, hate us. But we don't return hate for hate. We return love. And Lord, that's grace. That's what saved us. We were saved by grace. And may we be willing, Lord, to give it to others today. Father, you ask the question, may that be our answer. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. We have six more questions in the weeks ahead. God bless. Next week, be sure to be here. It's going to be a special missionary Sunday. The Bransons are going to be sharing a wonderful missionary report in the service next week. God bless.